It has been said that a horse has five hearts, one being the actual muscle and the other four being the feet. Hi, I'm Katie. And I'm Kim. Welcome to Equine Body Talks, a podcast about opening the conversation on equine wellness. Join us as we dive deeper into the whole body approach for your equine performance courses. So welcome back everyone to the podcast. With these crazy times still continuing, we're finding that a lot of our peers are starting to get itchy feet and want to get their practices up and running again. The recent warm weather will have something to do with that, and we are so thankful that it had finally decided to become springtime here in Alberta. (laughs) It's a good time then to start looking at our regular lineup of guests that we had planned before this whole pandemic hit. Today, we are going to start back from the ground up. We're looking at podiatry, or farrier work, its relationship to the horse's body, and what us as body workers can do to potentially detect when what we are finding in tissue above is actually coming from below. Our guest today is Farrier Matt Humbage. Matt has operated his business from Iron Force Farrier since 2011 and recently has been an associate of Energy Equine Veterinary for the last two years. Matt's passion for podiatry, working alongside vet veterinarians and owners, and tackling hard-to-diagnose cases has made him an incredible asset to many teams, including us here at Cooley Equine. He has recently transitioned to working solely as the in-house barrier for Energy Equine and is available to assist their veterinarians on podiatry cases as well as work on client horses. Matt is a third-generation farrier. Both his grandfather and uncle were farriers, and as a kid, he was always around horses and has always been wanted and has always wanted to be a farrier. So hey everybody, it's Kim and Katie back here doing the podcast still from a distance. Um, We're excited to hopefully eventually get back into the same room together with our guests. But uh, for the time being, this is how we roll and we're getting pretty good at it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah, we hope sound quality is, is still good for everybody as well listening. Going and working with a veterinarian for really the first time ever, 
And he took all kinds of radiographs and did all kinds of stuff that was foreign and spoke a language I totally couldn't understand. And I was hooked. And that was, that was, that was absolutely it. I was just, it was just crazy. So from there, I seeked out a, a company uh, which makes a horseshoe product called Sound Horse Technology. And, <laughs> sorry, COVID. Um, <laughs> Hope not. Uh, <laughs> So then uh, that sound horse sent me, they made a, a couple of phone calls and they got me a spot down at Root Riddle for a couple of weeks. And they kind of helped me get down there and, and I went down and Root and Riddle was like the testing site for all the sound horse tech. So naturally they had some really good ends. I went down there and I ended up hanging out with Dr. Raul Brock and Dr. Matt Weimer. And for two weeks, I just got inundated with more cases of things that you would never see in your life and I just got more hooked so then it was like get home take more education take more education take more education I actually talked to my wife and listen to what she had to say about body work and how <laughs> muscles worked and all of that stuff and since then it's just it's just been a crazy crazy ball of knowledge that can't seem to get enough of yeah, that's awesome. We've always talked about continuing education, obviously, from a body worker's perspective. Um, but it's nice to work with other team members that are also very much involved in wanting to educate themselves or keep their education going. So that's yeah. awesome. Um, so can you explain a little bit to our listeners? Obviously, most people are pretty conscious of the farrier term, but another term that is thrown around often, uh, even more so now, is the podiatry. So what exactly is equine podiatry and, you know, is there any difference that you would correlate with farrier? Well, you know, I absolutely would. And some of it, some of it got kind of taken all out of context and, and I'm not going to name names or do anything nutty like that, but there's lots of the scenario where people are calling themselves equine podiatrists. And to me, a true equine podiatrist has to hold two things. They have to hold their uh, license to be a veterinarian, and they have to be a certified juryman farrier. Those are the, the two things that could truly create an equine podiatrist. The rest of us are either, you know, certified farriers or uh, the certifications in barefoot. But we can't truly be podiatrists because there's so much more to that when I look at it. But it's a term that um, just about anybody can use right now so it's not a certified or a board certified scenario so to me that's what a podiatrist is is an actual veterinarian that is a farrier and has some very formal and and measurable farrier experiences behind it yeah i think that's, that's or, or her yeah for sure i think that's a great uh, yeah. great definition yeah yeah so as we mentioned before, Matt, you're kind of a staple here at Cooley Equine and you're weekly with all of our rehab cases. Many of you regular stuff too. But what are you doing now compared to six years ago? How are you different, I guess, from other farriers? Um, so now, you know, I'm, I'm obviously working on a lot of experiences, like where I've experienced a lot of things. But one of the things, I, I've continued the education to try and, you know, become a better farrier at all times. But on top of that, I've trained very strongly with actual equine podiatrists in what they're doing and techniques and stuff. So I made myself kind of a 
made myself a team member in, in with body workers and veterinarians and stuff like that to get in and work on the entire horse. So what I do a lot different is um, <clears throat> when I approach a horse, it's the whole horse. Uh, lots of the farriers will come in. They'll watch the horse for 10 seconds and only look at how the feet moves. I watch how the head moves. I watch, you know, when they're on the circle, how does the whole body move? What is the, how does the pelvis look? Is that fine? Is the wither, you know, bigger on one side? Or, you know, I look at a lot more of the body and then I address how that goes down into the foot and vice versa. I address how that foot is transmitting up farther into the body. Where I think a lot of farriers do a really, really, really good neat and tidy job of the foot but it may not do anything for something above. It's a beautiful shoe job for the foot, but it's not for that horse, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. You're also taking into account a lot more um, what is the injury and then designing shoes specifically for those injuries, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there's lots of guys that'll go out there and, and say that, oh, well, you know, and, and I did this kind of a thing in the beginning. I look back now and there's a lot of horses I got to go hug when I get to heaven. But I look <laughs> back now and, and for a while there, I was an appliance applicator, right? I bought it off the shelf. I brought it home. I put it on a horse because I was told to do this or this said this or that said that. And, and you fast forward and there's so many things that I can do with either a regular keg shoe or I'll hand make shoes, steel or aluminum, at the horse. And, and I think there's a lot more things that you can do in how you apply the shoes. And I didn't know that earlier in my career. You know, it was like, oh, well, this is the shoe you put on. You turn the foot, pop that thing on there, and boy, you should have a fixed horse. And oftentimes they weren't. <laughs> so that, that's really what ended up taking me to another realm of saying, okay, well, I did this. This is what the book says. Why didn't it work? Mm-hmm. Well, that's when I started, really started seeking, and I go three, four times a year to work with different guys around around North America to try and get different techniques and different eyes and different ways of doing things so that I'm not stuck on this is how you do it and this is what you do and that's that. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a, yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. So when you first see uh, a case or get called in on a case and you're looking at this horse, I know from a body worker's perspective, we try to stay organized, right? In terms of, you know, where do we first lay our eyes? Um, what, what asymmetries are we seeing? Then we start looking at other aspects of the horse. So what are you looking for when you first look at a horse? So um, there's lots of, lots of things. But usually the first thing I want to do is see the horse. I want to see the horse come to me. I want to see the horse go away from me. If there was a veterinarian file, like we have a soft tissue injury, you know, I'm going to kind of hone in on that. I might not necessarily move the horse, but I want to kind of see the horse move, do my own mild lameness evaluation, not quite the extent of the veterinarians to do. Just watch everything, see how it's moving, see how it's going. And then I try and have a good conversation with the client. What do you feel? What do you see? How do you, you know, what's going on? Where do you view the problem? Uh, because oftentimes what I don't want to do is ask the client all the information first because I think it kind of messes up your eyes. You start honing in on what they were looking for. <clears throat> and sometimes what they see isn't at all the problem with the horse. What they see is a byproduct of something else going on in the horse. So when I organize myself, I try and organize myself to look at the animal, see what the animal's doing, then get the background story, 
then pick up the feet, see where we can go. Um, you know, in the perfect world, I have a veterinarian standing there, and if I think I need it, I get x-rays right away, and boom, boom, boom. And then we can start going from there. But that's my basic assessment is that I see the horse first, watch it move, talk to the client, get their fears and concerns, and then organize and figure out what I'm going to do from there. Right, yeah. Yeah. Yes, and I know your next steps after that, they're usually very calculated and specific to each case, hey? Yeah, it's really it's really hard when you come down to shoeing. So the only like standard operating procedure or the only thing that is the same or should be somewhat the same between all of us farriers is the basics. We should all know how to basically make a shoe and do all the rest of that stuff. So you have to know the basics. But then you have to be able to mold everything that you learned in basic around what you're trying to do with that specific horse in mind. So it's really, mm-hmm. really catered to each individual animal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of that is why the, the off-the-shelf shoes, you know, you can buy, I don't want to get sued for saying names, you can buy different types of shoes and different brands and different guys designed them and they're all fancy and they're all stuff like that. But until you know how to put them on, they they may or may not work at all. You have to know what you're doing and why. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Education. <laughs> it's the key. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, experience, too. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. It, you need to have uh, the experience behind you. And I think those that are getting into it, um, it either from a body worker's perspective, uh, getting in or if, as a farrier starting out, you know, being able to find that experience is going to be key. So whether that is mentoring with somebody or that is doing further education, but it, it's something that everybody I think needs to strive for that once you have that first piece of paper that says you completed a course, um, it doesn't need necessarily mean that, you know, you're off the hook. <laughs> you need oh, to keep going. Absolutely. I mean, I was the greatest barrier in the world had ever seen fresh out of school yeah. until I realized. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the rabbit hole we all get down into. So the more you know, the less you know. Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So obviously with when dealing with a, a horse's hooves, if you have a, a case that comes into you that is dealing with some pretty major uh, needs to have some major changes happen, we can't think about you just, you know, bring in a farrier, have them knock the, sh- the foot off and the horse is good to go. Uh, it's going to take months down the road for that to, to really see the fruition of the, of the end game. Um, so how long do you see, obviously each case will be different and maybe you can bring into play here some cases that you've worked on, but how long can you see that those changes need to be made? Is it months down the road, years down the road? Um, so it all depends really on what you got going on. So some of the changes in the feet, you know, uh, you'll get, say, a long toe and a low heel, and you have some caliber of soft tissue injury or, or issue going on with that foot. Oftentimes you can kind of create enough mechanics and enough things in a foot that that horse will, you know, tentatively could walk off when you're done 98% sound when he walked in 60% length. Mm-hmm. So those ones are really fast. Those are also really kind of really easy because I see them so often. But the overall change in that foot to where I want it to go, if the foot's capable of, of maintaining a change, usually is a full year. Uh, where you can get into doing your founder cases, 
and your your bad rotational founders and stuff. And you could be up to two years if you ever do get a really good looking foot or or a, what you might consider normal normal foot. When you look at things like founder, um, I have one particular case right now. She was so badly foundered, nobody knew what was going on that she actually absorbed two thirds of her coffin bone. Wow! Right, and the and the farrier that was working on her, you know, he did everything he could. He put hard bar shoes on. He tried everything. He did this, and he was he just no matter how he did it, he was set up to lose because he did not have the tools that he needed, both in experience and in radiographs and in Western medication that. He was destined to fail that case. It was never going to work for him. And when we stepped in, kind of brought in the whole team, got everything we needed, and uh, actually, uh, hilarious deal on that. This all came about last summer, and we had thought that this was a broodmare that had absorbed her full at that point. <clears throat> she was in so much pain that the, the doctors all thought she'd absorbed her full. So we went on, and, you know, it was save this mare at all costs. We did. We got that mare at Christmas time. She was doing a lot better. Everything was going well. And last week, I got a phone call uh, about 5, 36 o'clock in the morning. She just fold. So in that entire time, we had we had been treating her and getting her so better, like, on her feet that she would stand up and move. She hadn't absorbed the foal, but we had never gone back and rechecked her again. And she actually carried a foal all the way through. And the mare is, I wouldn't say 100% sound, but she's 90% better. Hmm. Oh, and, that's and so, and but she's gonna have a foot that's gonna be ugly and gnarly for the rest of her natural born life because she's missing some coffin bone. She's missing attachment that we can never put back. It'll never, it'll never truly go back to normal. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, do those two ways answer that? Yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Yeah. For sure. And I know too that um, kind of one. If it's like a soft tissue injury or something like that, if the horse is not located kind of within your traveling distance, I know you've been really good about talking to other farriers and stuff too, maybe if they don't have the experience with that type of horse, but um, do you want to touch a little bit on that, kind of how you go about helping people once they live farther away? Uh, okay, just kind of repeat the first half of that, the phone bleeped out for a second. Um, I just said, I know you've been really good about once a horse goes home. You're usually really good about talking to the farrier or the person who's going to be doing the feet um, long term. So I think that's another point we can touch on or if you want to expand on that a little bit. But you are able to work with other farriers and kind of use your experience, I guess, to guide them into what's best for the horse long term. Yeah, absolutely. So, like, yeah, we have horses that come in from British Columbia, Saskatchewan. I've had horses coming out of Manitoba. Uh, I've been flown up to the Yukon to do horses. So... Oftentimes what will happen is, is, I mean, we have FaceTime nowadays. We have these fancy Zoom meetings. We have all kinds of cool ways of doing things. So oftentimes what we'll do is, is I'll either, I can do a write-up or I can have a phone conversation with the farrier. Um, they can do kind of what they can do and I'm a total open book. If they call me, we can have questions and conversations about things. Uh, again, they can put me on FaceTime and hold the phone up while they're doing a trim and ask me a question, and I can kind of walk them through that. Uh, usually, some of it ends up into forging exercises over the phone, trying to, you know, a guy that doesn't normally do much forging, you try and walk them through that. So, 
the whole thing is, is all based around the horse, but it's come a little bit educational too, um, where, you know, you can, you can get these guys, especially out in rural places, you know, they, they've learned to become pretty efficient farriers, not having had the opportunity to go to school or, or have much school or get much experience outside of what is in their 50 to 60 kilometer radius for shoeing. Yeah, again. Um, oh, sorry, go ahead. Okay, what are most of the cases you work on? What are most of the cases or my favorite cases? Most of my oh. cases. Yeah, I would have to say that I get, like, in the summertime, rodeo season, jumping season, all the rest of the stuff, lots and lots and lots of soft tissue injuries, um, tears, pulls, strains, stuff like that, that we're working on. Um, long term, all year long, I do a lot of horses that have a lot of navicular or caudal heel syndrome. Lots of lots of painful horses. That way, we do. I do a ton of those horses throughout the year. And then usually spring and fall, we have a kind of a founder run where you're pretty busy just dealing with either green grass or frozen grass founder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and which ones are your favorite? Uh, I would have to say uh, caudal heel pain navicular problems are probably my favorite. And what about abscesses? Yeah. <laughs> or is that something, right. especially right now in spring, as the mud season has started? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, the perfect thing, mud season. Abscesses are kind of one of those things that go hand in hand. Um, I rarely find any that are, you know, really, every once in a while, every couple of years, I'll get one that's just <laughs> absolutely horrendous. But for the, most, for the most part, like just about anybody else, I, you know, I used to go digging for them. Oh, I think it's here. Let's dig, 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 dig. Oh, that's not the right spot. Let's dig, dig, dig to the next one. And I've gotten to the point now where, you know, unless that horse is really, really bad, I'll go with the let's soak it, let's do this, let's do that, and let's see if we can get it to come out on its own. Because I've I've seen way more damage by trying to go in and get an abscess than that abscess created in the beginning. Yeah. but some horses, you know, you'll get the worst ones I've ever seen. The horse never showed you that he was sore. And the ones that were like the horse should have never been sore was a little pinpoint of an abscess. Like it was it was barely nothing. Hmm. And that horse acted like his coffin bone was broken. And the other horse <laughs> the other horse was basically he was he was had an abscess and it was right around the coffin bone, so it was actually eating his bone and that horse was still healing horses or healing cows. So like, uh, I don't know. Of course, it was a real pork. <laughs> it was. It was tough. Yeah, I guess that's, yeah, pain, pain tolerance is yeah. just as valid in horses as it is people. <laughs> uh, yeah, what, yeah, for sure. Your breeds make what, it uh, What's the longest you've ever seen an abscess take to come out? Oh, gosh. I think that was at your place, Katie. <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> it's probably like two weeks. But normally, I mean, normally they go, they get a little bit sore, then they get sore, then they get super sore and then yeah. the next day boom they they blow out or you have a spot that you can physically open up and let them out but i think the longest yeah. one we had was at your place and it was about two weeks and it was deep it was in a yeah it, it was right up in the heel of a horse there and it just didn't want to let go huh. yeah <laughs> um another thing you do is some pretty funky shoes can we talk a little bit about the different types of shoes you're putting on? Like, I know we even have a horse in here, and the girls are like, what are these shoes? I've never seen them before. Um, yeah, what kind of shoes are you using? And I'm hoping that we can get some 
pictures of some of them too to put on our social media. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, as far as sending you pictures, that's easy. It takes pictures of everything, but we do everything. So we have different types of shoes. We have polyflex shoes, which is almost like basically gluing a, polyther- a polyurethane hoof onto the bottom of a hoof, and you glue that on with methylmethacolate, which is Equilux, as the industry calls it. And we can actually glue that directly to the foot. It bends, flexes, moves, does all the things like a regular foot does. Uh, that's a, a pretty phenomenal shoe to work with, and I really like that, especially on horses that are having some concussion issues and stuff. You know, sometimes the, the steel can be a little, it just doesn't work for them. Plus, you can take those horses that are, let's say, shoe pullers, and you don't give them anything to grab onto. You've just basically given them an extension of their foot. That's a, <clears throat> that's a really neat shoe. We have are those for competing, or are they for rehab? Oh, you can use them for both. I mean, when I was down in California just this year, several horses were competing at Thermal, California, with uh, the Polyflex shoes on. So you can cork them for jumping. You can use them in grass, turf, sand, whatever you want to do. And then, you know, your four to six weeks goes, and you knock them off and put a new pair on. And it worked really good for some of those horses that just couldn't handle standardized concussion. Uh, mm-hmm. So those were really good. We do lots of steel shoes uh, with modifications to a regular keg shoe, lots of handmade shoes, lots of aluminum shoes. Um, used to do lots of degree shoes um, and then with pour-in pads uh, because of just the way, that, the way that I see the body function. Now we do a lot more mechanics um, on an, a degree shoe, but, but the way it's applied is a lot different now. We'll do, you'll hear guys talk about it being called a, a rocker shoe or... Uh, some will call it a rock and roll shoe, um, and it's the way that you put that shoe on and how you change the the angle with the appliance. So we do yeah. we do a ton of those. Those are pretty much always put on with radiographs, and then your hard bars and and all the rest of that stuff. But some of my favorites are probably the glue on one, just because I find I just think they look really sharp. Hmm. Yeah. Can you touch a little bit more on pour and pad from a barrier? Standpoint? Are they? Should every horse have them? Is it case dependent? Um, you know, yeah. So where I use a lot of pouring pads, um, I'll use them either in conjunction with what we call a heel plate. So if you use a heel plate, a heel plate's like a an, an ultra wide bar shoe that is pretty much protecting the entire frog or the entire back half of the digital cushion. Uh, and then I'll use a pouring pad underneath of that to control what the ground surface is like. Or sometimes, you know, you'll get those blanket diagnoses from, from veterinarians. Oh, well, yeah, this horse has got navicular, so I want you to put three-degree wedges on it. Rarely in my life have I ever seen somebody put a three-degree wedge shoe on and the heels get better. They always, always, always crush worse. Unless you can put something in the middle to engage the frog. Because what happens is, is the foot prolapses, the heels collapse, the foot prolapses down through the center of the degree shoe, and the frog rests on the ground at the same level as the, the degree heel does. But when you take that shoe off, the horse is standing directly on its frog. So if you trim your frog, put your degree shoe on, and then put a ground-level pouring on your shoe, you've now engaged your frog, you didn't give it a chance to prolapse, and you're giving yourself a better chance of your heels to actually grow and not be so badly crushed. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. So that's using the body 
with an appliance, but you can't have one without the other. You basically, the heels would just fall right through the back. Your, your, your frog is always looking for ground surface. So you can yeah. put a 20 degree, you can put, you know, 20 degrees of shoe on those heels and that frog is still going to want to find the ground. That's, that's just the body. Yeah. And what else in terms of uh, types of shoeing that you can use for with medication, for instance? Um, oh, like to do, uh, to, so, I mean, you can use any shoe. So some, some horses, we had um, uh, one horse there that was badly, badly abscessing, and she sounded really bad, and I literally almost had to push her coffin bone back up into her foot. Well, we managed to get all of the... Um, uh, kind of abscess and gunk and grime and all the rest of that stuff out of there, but we needed to get something on that horse to make her feel better. And at the same time, you don't want to box in any anaerobes or something that's left in there to create more infection. Mm-hmm. So you can actually, with your vet's prescription, because as farriers, we don't just pick the stuff out of the back and throw it in the truck, but with your veterinarian's help and prescription, you can actually shoe um, like different things like metronidazole powders which is an antibiotic. You can put um, different calipers of mud, different calipers of copper sulfate mixes, all underneath of your shoe packages so that you can create an area that is safe for the horse to, to work in, right? Mm-hmm. Then you can do other things too, like uh, hospital plates, where you can take it off and maybe you have to do daily medication, topical medication to an area such as canker or um, bad abscess or a keratoma site something like that where you need to get in and be able to doctor it and medicate it. So there's several different shoe variations, but almost any shoe can be modified to do the job that you're looking for. Right. I know one of your, uh, one of your favorite questions to ask me when horses are here is what is this horse doing? You're always asking, where are they living? Are they in a box cell? Are they outside? Um, are they going in the water treadmill? Are they going to be in water every day? Or are they just like hand walking? Um, because I know you make a lot of decisions off of where a horse is going to be living as well. Yeah, so, I mean, that's one thing that I, when I was in the States, um, at all the different places, you know, you go to Kentucky and you go to Kansas and I go to Texas. And, and I mean, where those horses live and how those horses live is almost not a big problem. When you come to Canada, we have two seasons, mud and winter. <laughs> and and it's, it's difficult, you know, there's a dry period for a week in July and that's the best time to shoe a horse. But what I have to figure out usually when we're doing these is, you know, is this horse standing in knee-high mud nine months out of the year? Does he live in a stall nine months out of the year? Is he in the treadmill all the time? Because A, it's going to change what I might put in for a pour-in pad, how I apply the pad, if I'm able to glue something onto that foot. But then oftentimes we have to figure out the other half of it is, okay, well, I need all this mechanical stuff that gives this horse a much smoother transition on the ground and all of that stuff is elegant and everything like that, but it has no traction. So you put them out in the snow or the ice and you just created a death trap. So you really have to play into exactly where that horse lives, how that horse lives, how long he's going to be there. I often ask you, Katie, because if that horse is going to be there six weeks, I can control what that horse is going to do in his life by asking you to control it. But if that horse is going to be there for one week on the treadmill and I shoe him to be on the treadmill and that horse goes home and lives in a pond, that could be a, that could be a problem, right? 
massage something a ton and that horse has got to dredge through the mud all the time, you got to start saying to the client, hey, you know, this injury is because of where this horse lives. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's the variety of questions, like you say, that you need to have that conversation um, with the owners and trainers, wherever the situation the horse is going to be living and make the best case, best plan for them. Uh Yeah, yeah. So you talked uh, about the frog and it's wanting to always be in connection with the ground. Can you touch in uh, a little bit in terms of then what would make you feel you need to put a shoe on a horse as opposed to just trimming a horse? I mean, uh, yeah, that's a that's a great question. There is a ton of times when I can handle it that I don't want to put shoes on a horse if I don't absolutely have to. We can do certain kinds of trims. Um, you know, some of that barefooter stuff the, the, that the, they've now brought to light where they term themselves barefooters or natural, there is a lot of that that has really, really good qualities at certain times in certain ways for horses. And I modify and use a lot of that in a trim. And those times are, are great, but other times the horse needs to go to work. You know, rodeo season here is six months long and they can't handle having a horse down, not being able to really truly work for any more than a week. So we need to get something on that horse to kind of, you know, meet both, meet both needs. So I really evaluate what the horse is doing, why the horse is doing it, and does the horse need to do it with what's going on, and then shoe or not shoe accordingly. Right, yeah. What are some of the most common mistakes then that you do see with horses in their feet? The horses in bare feet? Well, not necessarily bare feet, but just, you know, if you, you're working um, at Energy and you have a uh, horses that come through oftentimes they're obviously not ones that are in your regular roster um what what would you sort of see is something that you could point out that maybe you know is missed more so than other from others Yeah, you know one of the one of my biggest things is and i see this all the time and and from all different types of shoers um but what i'll see is is the client will say well i'm trying to stand this horse up so I don't want the I don't want you to touch the heels. So what is what is the the farrier goes in really basically doesn't touch the heels, trims the bottom of the foot, uh, you know accordingly, and and then puts on a shoe and dumps a lot of the foot back down. And a couple of things happen: heels grow forward, toes grow forward. You, I mean, any of you guys in the body working world know that everything grows forward on the foot. So by leaving the heel alone, by stacking the heel, you're actually underrunning the horse more. You're making way more tension on all your deep digital flexor tendon and all your soft tissue attachments on the back of that leg are on fire. Um, And you end up with too much toe. So they'll get too much toe and they dub that straight back and then they put on a shoe that's too small. That is the most common thing that I see. And the first thing we do is pull all that off and try and trim properly and bring those heels and bring that foot back in proportion. And and that will change your uh, PA or your palmer angle. That will change it faster than just putting on uh, a degree shoe or by leaving the heels alone and letting them stack up. Mm-hmm. Does, that make, does that make sense? I mean, it's kind of a visual thing. Um, I dealt with that again this morning. I had a client wonderful client well-educated client and they're like well do you need to you know can we leave that heel alone and i was like well leaving that heel forward actually makes this foot 
on a bad axis. Right. And when I explained it all to them, they're like, that makes, it makes a lot of sense, but you don't think about it like that. Yeah. Because people look at feet two different ways. They look at a foot at the top and the side, and they say, oh, that toe's too long. I don't have enough heel. And then they look at the bottom and they say, oh, yeah, I got lots of heel. Look at that. There's a gap between the seat of the corn and the, and the top of the heel. There's, you know, half of an inch. And they shoot at that. But they're shooting that foot three-quarters of an inch farther forward than it should be, mm-hmm. creating a bad angle. It, mm-hmm. It's a really a visual thing. I, I hope I can explain that enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yeah. I think that makes makes sense for sure. a lot of x-rays like with yeah. the health of a veterinarian and I've seen you read even more x-rays so in your opinion why are x-rays so important to you um, and I know you work very closely with um, a veterinary team and how important is that on some of your big cases I mean yeah you know to be absolutely 100% honest with you to have the ability to take a look at the skeletal system and the wet soft tissue you can see in conjunction with the foot, it really just is so pivotal in what you can do with a foot because you can take a look at what that is and you can look at the whole angle all the way up to the fetlock and say, oh, wow, this is all out of whack. It looks like a jigsaw puzzle. And, and you can get some real good fluidness in how you approach that foot. It also gives you some markers that you can transition. So, you know, you pick up a foot, you think, oh, I got tons of room to pair this off with my knife. But radiographically, you got six millimeters of sole. Six millimeters of sole is the bare minimum amount of sole you need to functionally have your circumflex artery function. So, I mean, you go in there and you start carving that all out, and all of a sudden the horse gets sore. Well, I wonder why. He didn't have it. Um, you know, so radiographs are just pivotal in what you can do. You know, and the founder cases... You can see, uh, you can see basically where your inflammation has caused issues, how the stretching is. You can look at the, uh, do you have a ski tip on the tip of your coffin bone? What degree is your coffin bone as opposed to your hoof wall? How big is your laminar wedge? Is there a wedge? Do you have, uh, any real digital cushion at the back or do the heel bolts, you know, they look really bad, but they might, you know, they look really bad in your hands. But radiographically, that foot doesn't look that bad. So so it is pivotal to have, you know, you can't have too many x-rays. And in a perfect world, I think everybody that's going to compete, show, or do anything should do a certain amount of radiographs at the beginning of each season so that if something, God forbid, happens to them mid-season or late, you have a baseline radiograph to say, hey, whoa, this shoeing's all out, or this foot is rotated, or this has happened that wasn't there you know, six months ago. I think it's it should be done as often as somebody can afford it. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. There's always the ideal, isn't there? <laughs> what we would love to work yeah. with. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it's really that. But I'm always kind of like, you know, when you talk to the girls that are, are rodeoing and stuff like that, I'm like, miss one jackpot and get some radiographs. Because this could yeah. save your horse. This could save your horse in, in three months or four months when we can go in and look at stuff. And, you know, there's been times where you find something where it's like, hey, well, that's a keratoma. You know, like, here's this, that may not be a problem right now, but that is absolutely going to be an issue soon. Mm-hmm. You know, so you can get ahead of things like that or you can see things, uh, you know, quarter cracks, 
oh, it's just a little quarter cracky selenium deficient. And then you dive into it and no, it's, it's a keratoma or it's a, it's a structural failure inside. Mm. But yeah, can't yeah. stress that you need them enough. Yeah. <clears throat> And it's, it's been said often that a horse has five hearts, the, the actual muscle itself, along with the four feet uh, on the ground. So how important, uh, obviously, the hoof is extremely important to the horse, but how important is that, that regular schedule to keep those feet in optimal condition? And how often would you suggest that a horse be on set schedule? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's absolutely important that a horse is on a schedule. Their feet need to function. Um, the more out of length, and again, we talk about feet growing forward and all that good stuff, it's not just necessarily the foot or even blood flow, but we can look at the stress on our tendons, the stress on our ligaments, and all the rest of that stuff. So you go and take your horse into the arena, and you think, oh, I haven't trimmed Fluffy in a while. Maybe I'll just... You know, I'll just rope this one, or I'll just do these little bit of jumps, or I'll just run the cans once. It takes one time to have a deep digital flexor tear or rupture. Mm-hmm. It takes one time to have a collateral ligament injury, and that will haunt you for the rest of the time that you were planning on riding that horse, I promise you. Yeah. You get a collateral ligament injury on a barrel horse that was going to start running cans in two weeks, but he needed a trim and he didn't do it. And boom, you just took that horse out of commission for two or three months. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, so it is, it is absolutely important. Now, lots of people, you know, group mares will get trimmed once a year, whether they need it or not. We see that all the time too. Um, and, but they, they should be on some set caliber of schedule. If a brood mare is allowed to really travel and in a big pasture and can kind of wear that foot out and you want to keep eight weeks between it, hey, you know what? That's not that. It's not that bad because she's not expected to do that much. But idealistically, we'd like to see them at six as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, performance horses, I actually prefer to do at four and five. Four, idealistically, especially in the rodeo world. Oh, okay. Really? Yeah, because I've come into, you know, lots of it is by the time you get to six weeks, you've pounded the, you've either pounded the shoe out. The foot has overgrown the shoe because you do have to tend to shoe most barrel horses tighter in order to keep a shoe on for six weeks. So I find if we can do a horse at four weeks, give or take, depending on rate of growth and how the horse is taken care of and all the rest of the stuff, if that horse can handle it and we can do shoeing every four weeks, we get less chances of the shoe coming off early and we get more ability to kind of maybe fit that foot a little, a little fuller to support that foot a little bit better. Whereas if you're trying to go six weeks and things start to come a little bit loose here or there, you could end up ripping that foot off. And by midway through the season, you got half a foot missing. So that, that's my opinion. Not everybody's of that opinion, but that's what I prefer in an ideal world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. So now for the tough questions, Matt. As we mentioned, is an equine body worker. Yep. Can you touch on how you guys kind of complement each other and maybe some of the conversations you have at dinner? (laughs) Oh, well, I think she's wonderfully beautiful, but she thinks I'm an ass most of the time. (laughs) Um, That's pretty much how the compliments go. But as as far as our professional world goes, it works really well um, where we can come home and 
and kind of have those. We, we almost have some set times around the house where we'll have conversations about horses and then the rest of it's about kids and life because it's almost too much horse for us sometimes. But yeah. um, what's really good is, is I can say to her, like, well, you know, I've got this case and it's foundered and it's been standing in this stall. It's 12 by 12 and it can't move. And I think that the horses, other parts are compensating so much. What can I do? And she can give me stretches or she, she'll go and, and deal with it or, or talk to the clients or work out some caliber of rehab program that that particular horse can, can handle where it's at in its life and kind of maximize what it can do for life. So that works really well. And the other thing is, is she can really critique my vocabulary and, and help me get along. So I don't, I don't just sound like a hillbilly that puts shoes on. She's, she's so smart and knows so much about the horse and the body and the function that she really kind of manipulates the way that I look at shoeing a horse quite often. Hmm. That's great. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, what would you suggest to other body workers out there from what you've learned from Teresa in regards to what might lead, if we're working on a horse, for instance, and we're finding there's um, tension or pain in, in a specific portion of the body, what are some of those areas that you see the imbalance then leads to issues that are coming from um, the feet? Yeah, so one thing that I've been studying a bunch as of lately is um, the, the first one that I kind of started with was lateral flare on hind feet in conjunction with SI or pelvic pain. Okay. And I found that we almost got twice as much lateral flare on those horses that tended to have more chiropractic or uh, SI injection, needing of SI injection to be comfortable. I found that there was way more of that in conjunction with lateral flare on hind feet. I've seen a ton of that. You're, you're always going to have a small amount of lateral flare on hind feet, but when it's exponential to the point of where you actually see heel ball change on the back feet, then I usually, I can take my hands and run up uh, as a farrier, not as a body worker, run up and just take a look and just kind of do those pressure points, and that horse nine times out of ten will light up back there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing if a, if a if you start to see the feet, I think is a chronic issue from what's going on in the pelvis. And I think that you have to have the pelvic issue to really have the foot issue if you have good foot care. One causes the other, and it doesn't matter what anybody does with the feet. The feet get blamed all the time. It doesn't matter what you do with the feet until you address what's going on in that pelvis. It ain't going to happen. Mm-hmm. And now we go to the front of the horse, and where I see a lot of problems is those horses that they stick their neck out straight, uh, um, I think it would be right around C5, 6, maybe even 7 right in there where there's a uh, facet change where you would get a veterinarian that might go in and, and once or twice a year those particular horses are getting injected into the neck. Well, all of a sudden it's really easy to keep their feet good. And then as their neck gets really tight, as all of those flexors up in there get tight, the feet start getting bad. They start getting longer toes. They lay back on those heels. It's almost like they keep their neck really straight and they position their their leg more underneath of their trunk, which mm-hmm. to me pushes that toe up and gives you that long toe crushed heel look. Yeah. Usually, I and I can't prove it, we're just kind of in the beginnings of looking at it because there's a lot of dynamics to that with ultrasound and radiographs and stuff like that in order to truly do a study. But from what I have seen, what I've observed, 
is it those horses with neck and pole injuries or, or issues up in those areas, you will typically see they'll get caudal heel pain. They'll get a really long, rounded toe, and they just start narrowing back in the heel. That, that's my opinion, again. <laughs> but that's what I see. So I think if somebody looks and they, they feel a lot of issues, a lot of tension up in the neck, look at the feet. See what the front feet look like. Do they look proportionate? Do they look normal? Does it look like there's a heel? Um, and, and in your navicular cases, 90% of the time, if you've got caudal heel pain, you have issues in the neck. You Because I think at that point, diagnostically, the caudal heel pain that gets diagnosed ends up, you fix that, and then you find something in the neck. Mm-hmm. You almost always will. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we've talked about this a little bit, Matt, because you are very approachable and you usually take the time to explain things to a client. Um, you know, and I always ask you lots of questions and stuff. But for a body worker who may be suspecting a blood issue, how should they approach it? I mean, sometimes it can be a little bit intimidating. Um, first off, talking to an owner about another professional's work um, or approaching somebody else about what you're finding. Yeah, that is such a such a world. I mean, we deal with that almost every day. Being a farrier, I don't want to come in and judge other people's work. But at the same time, if the work's affecting the horse, you know, you, you don't want to do it or you need to do it in a very tactful manner. Approaching a farrier can be very difficult. We are, typically, we work alone and we do that for a reason. Um, <laughs> and that's just kind of our personalities. And, and you know, it, it's a, it can be very difficult. The way that I would approach an owner is have a conversation with, hey, is your farrier struggling with the feet? What is, what is your farrier finding for a problem? You know, what is he seeing down there in the feet? And the, the best way that I can describe on, on my way of doing it is make everything their idea. Make it the owner's idea to ask questions about the feet. Make it the farrier's idea to ask questions about the feet or, or answer questions to you about the feet. Like, because if you come at them, they almost get abrasive most of the time. Owners yeah. don't know. Owners just want to have the best of, um, for their for their feet on their horses, so they go to the farrier, and you know their interpretation of your question might be, "Hey, what the hell did you do wrong?" Yeah, and yeah. all you said was, "Hey, does he struggle with this?" Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So the, I think, and and you get, we get a ton of it. Veterinarian to farrier, farrier says, or veterinarian says something to the owner. Owner takes that back to the farrier and basically relates the job to you're an idiot. And I have to get somebody else, right? And then, then so then everybody's hair is up in hackles. So I would approach anybody very carefully. I would do your best to make anything their idea so they're more open to having a conversation about what they see. Um, and then have them be open to hearing what you have to say. But ultimately, it's going to be tricky. Um, and it always will, I think. Yeah. And body work and carrier work go hand in hand. Carriers don't do body workers jobs, body workers don't do barriers job, but neither one can do a good job if one part isn't working. Absolutely. And you know, the body workers, it is it's a, being married to one, it's super intimidating because as farriers, we know lower limb anatomy. You guys know what moves an eyelid. So it is it is mind blowing for us with the terminology and all the stuff that you're coming out with and 
and things that you're talking about in conjunction. And at that point, it's it's high enough that lots of farriers, they don't even know that that's an attachment or that's an insertion. They have no clue. You know, mm-hmm. they know from, if you're lucky, they know from the carpet down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and lots of the farriers that you're going to deal with, they don't know what a carpus is. So you're lucky if you get them to know that yeah. much. Yeah. And, and that's not being rude. That's the truth of the industry. So I think that body workers can be very intimidating to talk to. Because, again, you talk in a lot of very Latin, very Zet jarble that farriers just blank out. Like, yeah, I'm going to shoot this horse lady. Right. So, or man. Or man. Yeah. It's not, yeah. Well, and I so. think that leads, you know, to the next question, essentially, is that the credentials and, and talking with um, or having people on your team that do have the appropriate credentials to be able to understand the anatomy and then work as part of the team um, approach that we're all hoping for. So mm-hmm. we have a lot of different schools. We've touched on this on other podcast episodes in regards to the bodywork profession and the mm-hmm. fact that, you know, there could be all from a day to a weekend course to a year-long course or whatnot. Can you talk a little bit about the differences in the farrier world in terms of the schools that are out there, but also in terms of the accreditation that is available to you guys? Yeah, so, I mean, in Canada, basically, to be honest, in Canada, you can go out to the road, hang your shingle, and call yourself a farrier. But, I mean, you'll very quickly become found out. Uh the American Farriers Association in North America is probably the leading um, credentials that you can get in North America as it stands right now. And then from there, once you achieve a certain level with the American Farriers Association, you can then go on to start practicing uh, to learn in the British system. And the British system is very, very intense. It's very, very knowledge-driven, uh, and it's, it's intense. In Canada and the United States, if you were to follow the American Farriers Association, you'd go to school, you'd become an apprentice. After so long of being an apprentice, you would go become a certified farrier. And that is, that's not a, that is not an easy test to do, to become a certified farrier. And then your next step after that would be to become a certified juryman farrier. And after that, you would get smaller endorsements. You can become a teacher, like a teaching instructor, or you can become a therapeutic endorsed, and all of those take certain amounts of time. I started into my accreditation really late. I didn't. I was really kind of one of those spots where I didn't know. I was like, ah, I don't think I need it. I'm making just fine. Mm-hmm. And now I'm a true, true, true believer on the, taking the course and, and doing all of that. And it went kind of sort of hand in hand. I mean, I gained so much knowledge in six years doing the therapy and traveling with the therapy guys and stuff like that. But then lots of that turned back to showing me that I needed to really strengthen up my basics. And I couldn't do a good enough job for the horses until I really strengthened the basics. So the credentials and accreditation is really, really uh, something that's very important. And it's very important to me. And I think it's very important for somebody to ask, you know, did you go to school? Yeah, I went to Oklahoma. Okay, well, well, from there, where did you go? Mm-hmm. Well, I started shoeing horses because I have to make a living. Well, how long have you been doing that? Ten years. Oh, so you've not done anything to, you've not picked up a book, you've not done anything. I think it's very important to continue on, regardless of what school you go to or where, whether you went in Oklahoma, Texas, 
capable of at least once in his life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think it's very, very important. Yeah, we can't stress yeah. enough, I guess. And that, that's the key is just to try to find the difference between, and, and like you said, most people are going to figure it out pretty quick. Um, if they have any kind of basic knowledge, but uh, for those that don't even have the basic knowledge, it's nice to know the differences like you've just explained. So that's good. Yeah. And there's different levels. So like I'm doing, um, I'm going through all of my stuff right now and everything, but I'm really dialed in on lameness. I, I absolutely love lameness. And there's other guys out there that are really dialed in on the competition and really the technical aspect of, of making a beautiful shoe and doing that. And there is nothing wrong with either world. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't necessarily interchange because guys that make amazing shoes often don't work on badly foundered cases. And badly foundered cases, those guys often don't necessarily make shoes. Mm-hmm. But the basics that both of those things came from are from the same place. You can't make a beautiful shoe or work on founder unless you have done at least the basics. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you're very well traveled, Matt. Like you said, you travel three to four times a year to different clinics and stuff. Um, are they doing anything outside of, I guess, Canada or Alberta that um, isn't here yet as far as barrier stuff goes that uh, you're excited for? Yeah, absolutely. So down in the United States, all the places where I'm lucky enough uh, to get invited and to be able to go and be able to work with those, there is so much more veterinarian farrier collaboration where it is actually like the farrier lives in the, lives in the, uh, the clinic. Like, so that farrier does just nonstop farrier work, even right down to just regular basic trims and stuff like that in a vet setting or for the veterinarian under the guidance of a veterinarian. And it is, it is, that's their job. Their job is to know how to deal with it. They are, are, they act as a technician as well as um, uh, uh, a farrier and they do stable, like they just stable care. They do phenomenal jobs with what they can do that we haven't really seen that anywhere in Canada yet where we actually have a podiatry center. Um, I would have to say um, right now, either at your place, Cooley, or at Energy Equine are probably the two closest thing to some caliber of a podiatry center where it is actually that is what we're doing shoeing for the veterinarian full-time that is pretty much the only places that uh, that i know of in canada right now and i hope at one point at some point it just it takes off and and we see farriers employed by veterinarians and working under veterinarian um specific scenarios because i think we need it you know there's so much stuff we can do for the horse out there that they're doing in the United States and that they're doing in Europe that we haven't brought to Canada yet, you know? So mm-hmm. I, I'd love to see more of that. Oh, well, he's lame. Let's just turn him out on 600 acres. And if we bring him back in the spring, see if he's better. Uh, you know, I'd love to get away from more of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And can you speak a little bit to the fact um, or what's involved in regards to the pricing that you have to put, not necessarily uh, listing your pricing, but we had this chat with Dr. Peterson and her in regards to the chiropractics and why, you know, her as a veterinary chiropractor would then have to charge a, a certain amount because she needs to cover costs when it comes to her insurance and her um, 
her education and all that type of thing so that, you know, her price point obviously is going to be higher than what a lay chiropractor would be. Um, and so people then that look at just price as opposed to looking at the price versus, you know, what, what else is behind that price when it comes to farriers? Yeah. My, it, go, it, it really goes into, and we've all seen it, we've probably all heard our parents talk about it and all the rest of that stuff. You know, when you break it down, if you go to the dollar store and you buy a blender for a dollar and it lasts you one time, or you can go to Canadian Tire and spend $60 on a blender and it's going to last you for 10 or 12 years, it's almost the same as far as the farrier work goes. So my education has cost so much and I've had to have so much experience that I have to be a little more pricey on some of the stuff because it's time consuming. There's lots of moving parts to it, you know, whether it be glues or packings or, or whatever caliber of inventory. And then on top of that, I mean, you can have all the fancy stuff you want on your truck. If you don't know how to put it on, if you haven't spent the time learning how to do that, then it ain't worth nothing. So there's lots of guys that can be, you know, you can get somebody that charges you, let's say, $65. Oh, I'll give you a hell of a deal. I'll give you $65. I'll put those shoes on. Well, that's all great, but it's $65 more than likely for nothing because the shoes were put on it properly or, or the shoes weren't even meant for the job at all because the, the caliber of workmanship wasn't there for that horse either. Mm-hmm. So I think that pricing is really important, you know, and if you're going to spend the money to put on let's say a set of aluminum degree shoes, why not spend the money to do it right rather than spend the money to have the same results and say it doesn't work? That's yeah. where I think that lots of this goes in, and that's the same with, with Dr. Peterson, like you were saying, or, um, I mean, you guys as body workers would get the same thing. If you've got a really chronic, bad moving dressage horse, getting somebody right out of school that's just, just in their practicum stage is probably not the best bet to work on that $150,000 horse. You're going to want to get somebody that's got 10 or 15 years that's experienced all this, that knows whether, do I need a massage or do I need an x-ray? That's, you know, those are the things that are really pivotal, I think. Yeah, and I think, I mean, great point there. And in regards to somebody, I know in, in my situation at the moment, I'm, I'm going to be working with a, a young lady who is just coming out of school and, and has a client already, but she feels you know, she, it's maybe a little bit more than what she can take on at this point of her, um, education in body work. So she's Uh asked me to come on to the case as, uh, you know, just a bit of a mentor and, and see what my two cents are in regards to it. And then, you know, she'll continue on working on the horse, you know, under a mentorship type uh, program. So I think that's also key is you still need to look at individuals that are coming into the industry and, and you don't want to um, put them on the wayside only because they don't have the experience. I mean, we all start somewhere, but being able to work as a team like that and not not get into that, well, it's my client, your client kind of attitude mm-hmm. is, is also yeah. pretty essential. And there's a lot of it, like with the experience, and you guys can probably attest to this as well, but a lot of it, you know, when I first come in shoeing, you're, oh, all this toe has got to come off. So you, you rip all of that toe off, and for six months you struggle keeping a shoe on because you robbed yourself of all the critical stuff. So short-term, you made a difference. Long-term, you caused more problems for yourself than, 
than you even thought you were going to do. So I, I would think the same would be for you body workers. Like, you know, you can do something, a movement or this or that, and short term, your results are great. Long term, you might have set yourself back. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And that's yeah, experience. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think it's like you said, what you pay for now is what you get long term. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to remember that a farrier and the horse's feet, you know, what they're doing now is going to affect that horse for up to a full year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, paying to have the right person do it might be worth it in the long run as opposed to having to spend a whole year fixing a, a poor job. We've, we've, we've done a lot of stuff um, at the clinic and I've done a lot of stuff at, at your place, Katie, that has looked really, really good but it was not functionally proper and it took a year to get it to where it needed to be. And the difference was is the focus was on the look of the foot, not the function of the foot. And if you, if you, you know, sometimes what the horse needs to have done doesn't look pretty, but you can fast forward and think about what that, and I think that's what farriers do. Farriers can see a seasoned farrier can see what a foot's going to look like in six months to a year. A new farrier looks at what what's this fucking look like tomorrow? You know, how much yeah. of a change can I do right now? And they have to get bit enough times that 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 starts to stand. And I was as guilty as anyone um, of doing that. So yeah. I, I think that that all plays into what you pay. And and you cannot pay enough for good quality footwork when you need it. That's very true, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I think that's all the questions we have, Matt. So thank you very much for joining us. And no if anybody has more questions, we'll just uh, post Matt's phone number all over our stuff. It's pretty much an open book. So, I mean, you can just, just call or text. Or um, Texting's usually easiest. I'll probably end up calling you. But if you text me, I will get back to you at some point. Um, yeah, any of those sure. questions, I'm an open book. Happy to help. Happy to point out resources for people as well. Awesome. And you're yeah, mainly based out of energy now as well, or? So I am a hundred percent mobile. I got a brand new rig and all the rest of that stuff. And we travel just about anywhere. Veterinarian wise, I've, I've been working out of energy equine for the last year. Uh, but we are absolutely 1000% mobile. Um, Iron Force Farrier is its own thing, okay. but I do a lot of work inside of energy equine. I do a lot of work at Katie's place outside of energy equine for other veterinarians and, and I'll go wherever the cases are or I'll get the cases to come to typically to Katie's flip to work on. Right. Okay. Good to know. So yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you again, yeah. Matt. We, is there any lasting impressions you want to make <laughs> to the listeners? I, you know what? I just stay with it guys. It's tough times and everything's, everything's a little crappy, but it'll get better. Yes. So, Good point. Stay COVID free. Yes. <laughs> great. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. All right. Thanks, ladies. Have a great night. You too. Thank you. We'd love to have you subscribe to our podcast and get all the new episodes. Please rate, review, and share with your friends so we can grow and bring you topics you're most interested in. Contact us through our website or on social media with your engagement.
We hope that you've gained some insight into the balance between farrier and bodywork today. It can't be reiterated enough to say that when working with horses, especially those performance horses who are asking to operate at peak performance at all times, that a team approach has to be taken. This includes your bodyworker, veterinarian, farrier, trainer, rider, and owner. As we move forward with our podcast, we have a number of guests lined up, but would really love to hear from you all as well. What topics would you, as our listeners, like to hear about? Connect with us through our social media pages on either Facebook or Instagram, or by email at equinebodytalks at gmail.com. We really look forward to being able to connect with you all and bring you the content that you are wanting to hear. Thanks for joining us today. Reach out to our social media pages for more information on today's episode and lots of extras.